I'm Alan Hellowell, founder of tech consultancy Gizmo Advisors and venture partner at Alpha JWC Ventures. Wonderful to have you join us today. Today's guest has become one of Indonesia's foremost practitioners of venture investment. He's someone I've known since my years running strategy at C Limited, and I've also had the pleasure of working with him in my current role with Alpha JWC Ventures. An entrepreneur whose earlier startup journey runs through China, Adrian Lee founded Jakarta-based Convergence Ventures nearly seven years ago. In 2019, he merged it with fellow VC Agete Venture to create AC Ventures. Adrian, wonderful to have you join us today. It's a great pleasure, Alan. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Great fan of your podcast. You're very kind. Adrian, now you have a very impressively diverse background, whether it's by geography, by industry, and in terms of leadership roles. I wanted, however, to focus on the many dimensions of your involvement in EduTech, from co-founding Adapted in Beijing in 2006, to now investing in promising distance learning startups in Indonesia as the managing partner of AC Ventures. Can you share with us this part of your journey? Certainly, Alan, and thanks for the question. So as a fellow Stanford GSBA, you'll be familiar with this question of what's most important to you and why. And this is one of the classic questions that come up in the Stanford essay. And I think understanding that and going to the root is important in understanding my part of my journey and why education was and continues to be important to me. So to me, one of the most important things is empowering people to create value and empowering them with opportunity, giving them knowledge, skill sets and resources to achieve their goals and ultimately create an impact. So for me, this is my life purpose. And I believe that in order to be able to find scalable ways to create positive change in the world, we have to collectively empower, in particular, entrepreneurs. Now, while I was at the GSB, education was, in my belief, one of the most important things in helping to empower people. And hence, I had pursued a joint degree at the time, which I did not finish to pursue my startup. But knowing that in my life story, in my history, what my parents taught me, the schools I went to, Harrow, Cambridge, Stanford, and all the mentors that I've had were extremely formative and instrumental to help me be in a position to support others. And so it was through this that I ended up starting my first company while I was at the GSB to create a live on-demand English training service in China. And we had found that speaking English proficiently in China was a major barrier to career advancement and higher education entrance. So we focused on building a technology platform that could scale live on-demand one-on-one training to thousands of students. In fact, when we started in 2006, we wouldn't know that six years later, a multi-billion dollar company using almost the same model that we had pioneered called VIP Kid would emerge in China. Now, as I think about what I'm doing today, Yes, I've invested in education companies in Indonesia, such as Colon, but really we think of venture investing more broadly as a way to empower people through our collective knowledge. And hence, you'll see that our motto at AC Ventures is also empowering entrepreneurs with experience, network, and capital. Fantastic. I can see your sustained interest in supporting education. Now, Adrian, a lot of the superlatives that VCs cite about Indonesia really relate to its size as the world's fourth most populous country. This obviously cannot be argued with. But one perennial question that many ask is, 
can this massive market actually be monetized? And what is your response to this question? I think it's important to understand that while technology companies often take some while to monetize, they then often disrupt traditional incumbents through their better and more efficient models. And so the potential revenue pie or the monetization potential, I think, can sometimes be seen in their traditional counterparts. So if you want to understand in the future how big that pie is and how big these technology companies can become, you could look no further, and in fact, beyond some of the enormous businesses that exist in Indonesia today. If you look at banking, BCA is one of the most valuable businesses, not just in Indonesia, but among Southeast Asia. If you look at consumer categories, companies like Indofood or Gudang Garam, for these companies, they've become one of the largest multi-billion dollar publicly listed businesses. And so we can see from the traditional counterparts, whether we're tackling fintech or e-commerce, that it is possible to build companies of this size. However, like China and many other markets, at the early stages of many technology-enabled businesses, their focus is on adoption and growth in lieu of monetization. And so I believe for the majority of businesses, certainly prior to Series C businesses, they're much more focused on their growth trajectory versus on their monetization. Excellent. No, I can understand looking at it from more of an evolutionary perspective. And your point in comping these opportunities, not against the China paradigm necessarily, but the offline Indonesian counterpart is very well taken. So Adrian, which parts of the internet space in your mind are already monetizing well? So I think in looking at this question, we'd want to first kind of define and understand what we mean by monetizing well. There are companies that have rather large revenues, or they could have healthy margins, unique economics, some even all the way down to profitability. But if I look across our portfolio, I can see a few examples of those that have shown strong monetization across each of those definitions before. Well, let's start with one of the hardest ones, profitability. And most companies will not be pursuing profitability at this stage of growth. However, in the business in fintech and lending, we've seen in our portfolio companies that have been able to show tremendous monetization through great unit economics and lean cost structures such that they can even get to cash flow profitability. And one of those companies that we see in our portfolio is a company called Coinworks, which is an SME neobank. Moving into another sector, such as commerce and social commerce, we've seen that models in groceries, for example, and those that are able to drive efficiencies in the supply chain, these companies have been able to get really high gross margins in their business. And this is much higher than what we've seen in the marketplaces. They're often coming into the 10, 20 plus gross margin range. So this, to me, indicates some strong monetization on the revenue plus margin. And then last, I would look at another business which historically has been difficult to monetize, but we've seen an ability to monetize once they achieve their required scale, and that is in payments. One of the businesses we invested in our earlier fund, Zendit, has grown incredibly. It is the largest payments business in Indonesia. B2B payments business in Indonesia. And from there, we can see that through the payments volume, they've been able to layer on additional revenue streams or contributing to a very healthy unit economics and margin on their business. That's really gratifying. It's been an area that I've scrutinized a lot, and I think it's going to be crucial 
for these business models to start just not growing eyeballs, but to harvest meaningful revenue from their users. Good to hear that you have more than a handful of instances of that. Now, Adrian, which parts of the internet space have yet to demonstrate monetization, but are ones that you have confidence will eventually? One sector that we have a huge amount of confidence in are MSMEs or micro, small, medium enterprises. And from what we've seen so far, it's quite hard to drive meaningful subscription revenue from these small, medium enterprises on a SaaS basis. And because of their small size, they also have low willingness to pay for software or tools that they may be using. So this is one area that's yet to see some solid monetization. Another area which we see that there are challenges in monetizing are digital media-based models. And as we know, in Indonesia, a lot of the digital ad market is dominated by global businesses such as Facebook and Google. And on the consumer side, given the relative nascency of the e-commerce consumer, they still are early to have to pay for content. And so this translates to models which rely on paying for content or relying on ads to face challenges in being able to monetize in meaningful ways. So Adrian, do you see Indonesian enterprise paying for services anywhere across the B2B SaaS spectrum? So as mentioned earlier, we believe that in Indonesia, the B2B SaaS reliant models do have a low total revenue cap. However, we see that there's an even more promising model. And that is when these MSMEs use software, platforms can acquire really quality data and create alternative business models on top of that. These could involve creating platforms for marketplaces, or it could also involve creating financial services for the MSMEs who historically are severely underbanked. Having said all of that, we do have portfolio companies such as ESB who have been able to make a lot of progress in additionally monetizing and charging for their subscription service. And I think that talks to the point that if you do create a solid product and address some of the larger enterprises, they will pay for it. Excellent. Makes sense. Now, Adrian, we began investing from our third fund a while ago. What are the most profound changes that have happened between funds one and three in your mind? Has our investment thesis changed a lot? Are we looking at very different target industries today? When we look at our fund, we're still very much focused on being an Indonesia-focused early-stage technology investor. And in terms of our fundamental thesis, we're looking at business models which are riding off long-term secular changes, such as the adoption of e-commerce the infiltration penetration of fintech, tech-enabling MSMEs, as well as looking at business models that can be disrupted through using digital media. So these are trends that will continue for the next 5, 10 plus years. And because of that, we are sector agnostic in the Indonesia market, but highly thematically driven and do a lot of detailed grounds-up research, something I think you'll be familiar with in your prior days at Deutsche too, ascertain the right timing for digital models to emerge and disrupt their traditional counterparts. I think overall, however, we're a very founder-focused fund, and we seek purposeful driven teams of founders looking to build huge disruptive businesses, seeking the right long-term partners to support their ventures. And I think regardless of what decade we're operating, we're always looking for this type of founder and partner fit. Now, Adrian, what have been the changes in the ecosystem that you're investing in today compared to Fund One? We've seen really quite some incredible changes since Fund One. 
Now, bearing in mind that I started working on Fund One as early as end of 2013, some of the incredible challenges that we saw in investing and seeing the ecosystem in Fund One was A, talent. We did not see a lot of talent in Indonesia with regards to experienced founders building technology businesses. In addition to that, we didn't see much capital. We were pioneering in starting venture capital as an asset class in Indonesia, along with the likes of yourselves and some other players in the market. And last, when you look at the infrastructure, there was very little infrastructure for payments and logistics. We're limited to the traditional companies. Smartphone capabilities were far away from where they are. And certainly without the penetration of the Gojeks, the Grabs, the Shopees, there was much, much lower consumer trust back then. Now, if we fast forward to where we are today, I think you'll find the majority of consumers don't think twice about buying online. There's much higher consumer trust. The hardware that is being used on the smartphone is multiple times better, as well as all the supporting infrastructure for any e-commerce payments and logistics. Then as we delve into the talent ecosystem, what we've seen now is a huge recycling of talent not just returnees, Indonesians coming from top universities, coming back to Indonesia to start businesses, but also early team members who have graduated from the Tokopedias, the Gojeks, the Grabs, the Shopees, and decided to start their own businesses. And this has fueled a growth of new companies in the ecosystem. And alongside that, we've also seen much more capital. Now, while Indonesia still is some ways away from receiving the capital attention that a market like India has received, nonetheless, we've seen multiple funds raise successive funds, as well as global top-tier investors plugging this gap in both Series B and Series C and onwards. So the environment and ecosystem to be investing in venture businesses now is far more mature than it was several years ago. I fully agree with you. Now, Adrian, what one specific form of value add are you proudest of having delivered consistently across the ACV portfolio? I think when you look at the partnership that we formed across the three partners, Pandu, Michael, and myself, we really bring together a unique combination of partners who have scaled businesses starting in different markets, getting those companies acquired, as well as taking companies all the way to IPO. We bring many different networks, as well as different cultural considerations, as well as different regulatory and corporate networks together to bear and help our founders with. So one of the things I'm most proud of is that each of our partners is always accessible to our portfolio and very hands-on. And having been entrepreneurs, having been founders ourselves, and as we continue to be founders of our venture fund, we know that when we put a check into a company, we're standing there by our entrepreneurs and working with them to help them solve their challenges and help the growth of their business. Now, with our larger funds, we continue to also invest into our operations team and our platform so that we can scale specifically ways that we can help our entrepreneurs, be that through identifying critical talent to join their teams, delivering on business development requests, or making sure that we can expand our network and bring all those benefits of that network to our entrepreneurs. So this area of value add, these areas of value add are the ones that we are most proud of. Excellent. Now, Adrian, if I were to force you to isolate one investment opportunity that you currently feel is out of this world, what would it be? 
We've had some great success in our earlier funds in the fintech space. But having said that, we continue to believe that the opportunity for financial inclusion is so great and that the impact on this broader population is so big that this is the most interesting opportunity for this fund and it continues to be. And especially when it relates to provision of financial services to both the consumer and the MSME finance segment. So if you think about how big this market is, presently, if you look at reports, there are about 90 million adults in Indonesia who are underbanked. And that's more than half of the total adult population and really the core of the economy. On top of that, MSMEs employ over 120 million people, which is almost 97% of the total national workforce. There is a huge lending gap in here, as less than 15% of them have proper access to financing. And so despite all the growth in even just the P2P and the lending segment in the past few years, it only hit just over 5 billion in disbursements in 2020. And that's far from plugging this lending gap of 70 billion. But most importantly, I believe that in this sector, if we can push financial inclusion, enable productive lending to consumers and also to these MSMEs, the impact to the overall economy and GDP from Indonesia will be enormous. So this is the one opportunity that I think is out of this world in Indonesia. You make a very convincing argument for that. Now, Adrian, I see that AC Ventures also has a number of investments in e-commerce. What are your main assumptions around industry structure in this area? Could it evolve to a similar structure to China, where the top three are literally 85 to 90% of the market? And if so, what are the implications for your investment in e-commerce? So I think it's firstly important, despite the dominance already of some very large players in this segment, e-commerce remains one of the largest opportunities in the market. Reports estimate that this will be a TAM of over $150 billion by 2025. And it is supported by very favorable fundamentals with increased smartphone penetration, as well as rising income levels across the consumers in Indonesia. And despite all of that, we're currently seeing that online retail penetration is still below 10%, around 7 to 8% at present. In addition, most recently, what we've seen is COVID-19 has driven the adoption of e-commerce into new verticals, categories such as fresh. Now, looking at the existing marketplace giants, Tokopedia, Shopee, Bukalapak, and so on, we can see they've already built significant economies of scale and network effects. And consolidation has already started to happen across these giants with the go-to merger, partnerships with Ovo and Grab, common ownership across Lazada and Bukalapak. So I agree, I think it will follow China and you'll see consolidation happen over time. But despite that, we also continue to see e-commerce opportunities because it's far from the majority of the total potential market share that these dominant players have obtained so far. And broadly speaking, we see these opportunities in three lenses. First, we see vertical plays. Some of these have already played out, vertical plays such as home and living, fashion, and now increasingly direct-to-consumer brands in e-commerce. We also see plays in new models. So you see opportunities in social commerce. In fact, you've seen social commerce like Pinduoduo in China even disrupt some of the incumbent players. Lastly, we also see new markets. Now, the majority of e-commerce is still driven by tier one consumers and tier one markets. And so 
Frontier markets going from tier two to three and to four are areas that we can see e-commerce opportunities, as well as looking at the MSME as an e-commerce consumer and looking into marketplaces that are focused on B2B. So these are the areas that we increasingly focus on in e-commerce. So quite a large horizon of opportunity and clearly not a winner-takes-all scenario, at least over the short to medium term. Now, logistics plays a mission-critical role in the success of e-commerce and has also seen some very healthy levels of private investment. How do you view market share evolution in the logistics space between the traditional offline players and some of the new business models? So I think it's important to understand in logistics, Indonesia is one of the most complex markets, which is also tackling some of the poorest infrastructure for filling logistics and deliveries across all the many thousands of islands in Indonesia. In fact, logistics was utilized in 24% of Indonesian GDP last year and continue to exhibit extremely high growth over the next few years. And we expect that could be reaching $100 billion in value by 2025. And so fueled by all of these tailwinds with e-commerce, with the pandemic, with the competition within all of the players, there is a lot of space for logistics companies to meet that demand. And as I mentioned, because of that geographic complexity of Indonesia, it means at least right now, it won't be a winner takes all. And in fact, if you look at some more mature markets like China, there continue to be several players who are dominant across the ecosystem. And so what we'll see in Indonesia, I imagine, is probably three to five players which reach really big scale. All players will have to utilize technology in some way or form. But we'll continue to also see a longer tail for the medium scale future on companies which are just far more efficient with lower cost bases and able to do less frequently used routes. And there'll be alternative models like aggregators that will be able to bring all of the supply online to create more efficient logistics for the increasing demand. Makes eminent sense. Now, Adrian, your career has spanned a number of geographies, including China. What assumptions, learnings, and experiences have you been able to graft directly into Indonesia from your China experience with great success? So I think from what we can see in China, firstly, when building large technology-enabled businesses, especially emerging markets such as Indonesia, I'm really appreciating the importance of large homogenous markets. And so that's why for us, we focus on Indonesia and not ASEAN or Southeast Asia, but really on Indonesia. That's the way that we believe that founders can build the biggest businesses, ultimately if they want, across the region, but first to be starting in the largest market. The second thing is, again, as we've seen in China, there's a huge importance of localization. Even though we're identifying disruptive, proven disruptive business models that we see in markets such as India or China, it's not a simple copy-paste. You very much have to see what are the nuances in the local market and ensure that local execution builds businesses in the way that meets the consumer's or enterprise's needs. And you can see some very obvious differences between Gojek and how Uber evolved. Interesting. Well, indeed, on that flip side, where might the China-Indonesia comparison actually lead the investor to the wrong conclusions? So first, let's look at competition. In China, there is some amount of restriction for global players to be tackling areas such as search and social media. And so you see the emergence in China of companies like Baidu and Tencent and so on. But in Indonesia, this is very difficult because of the open market. 
and you've seen the dominance of Facebook, TikTok, and global players take dominant market share in these areas. The other thing I would say is that, from a local competition standpoint, in China, competition is so intense. I remember when I was in China and Groupon was the rage. There were some people said thousands of Groupon-style companies emerging all at once. And when I came to Indonesia, and I saw what was happening here. There were barely a handful of such companies. So there's a big difference in terms of what is global competition, what is local competition from China to Indonesia. The second thing is the role of government. I believe the Indonesian government has worked in a very inclusive and proactive manner to support the growth of the digital economy. They recognize its importance and have put in place important policies and engagement, importantly, with digital players in order to craft regulations that help support the economy, the digital economy. You can see this very clearly in terms of how the Indonesian government has approached regulation in fintech compared to how it happened in China. Now, Adrian, you serve in a number of mentorship roles. Which one are you currently most heavily involved in, and why? So, I've been involved in a number of organizations to support the broader ecosystem. Those include Antler, Endeavor, for example, entrepreneurs' organization. However, my primary focus is on our own portfolio, and so when we invest in a company, we're not just investors. We're also coaches and mentors to help our founders. So really, I'm most heavily involved in our own portfolio, which now spans quite a number of companies. Understood. Now, Adrian, can you tell us about CNY Trust? Certainly. So with CNY Trust, that was an organization that initially started while I was at Cambridge in my final year, and the whole idea around CNY Trust was how we could mobilize students at the university, organize events to raise money. And donate it to children in need of education back in China, and this relates all the way back to this idea and belief that education is one of the key things we can do to help empower people with a better future. Presently, my role as chairman is not particularly active. The organisation supports itself with a society at Cambridge as well as counterparts in China to facilitate the raising of money from students and through events. And then the donation to charitable causes to support education in China. Clearly, a very admirable cause, Adrian, and great to gain such an expansive account of your path to becoming a leading venture capitalist in Indonesia, and how you and your team stand out in your philosophy and basic investment approach. Super thoughtful insights. Thanks again, Adrian. Thank you so much, Alan, for having me on this show, and thank you also for this podcast and for telling the story. To the world of all the very interesting advances that are happening in Indonesia's digital ecosystem. Thank you for that feedback. Well, luckily, there's so much to work with on that. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indo Techno Podcast with us. Terima kasih telah mendengarkan. Sampai jumpa lagi.